Welcome to your Truth Reveal video podcast, sharing the power of self-knowledge. I'm Erica Marcoux. Episode 7, Know Your DNA, is the first part of an interview with Dr. Deborah Dunn. This interview explores why DNA and mitochondria are such an important health topic and how understanding this genetic information can optimize your energy, health, and aging. All of season one helps you to be your own health expert as I interview industry professionals to explore your hidden mental and physical health potential. I'm here today with Dr. Deborah Dunn. She received her medical degree from the University of Texas and her master's in applied environmental public health from Tulane University. She completed a fellowship from Dr. Andrew Wiles integrative medicine program at the University of Arizona and completed training from the Institute of Functional Medicine. Dr. Deborah Dunn is the founder of Genetic Eve, a company that interprets mitochondrial DNA to help people optimize energy, health, and aging. And you can trace back in time through a molecular clock your ancestral pathway. So we know based on mutation rates and density of people, that's how we figured out all on mitochondria, the movement of women across the world. Welcome and thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Hi, Erica. Thank Hi. you for having me. You're so welcome. My goal for this interview is to educate listeners on why DNA and mitochondria have become such an important health topic and how understanding this genetic information can help you optimize your well-being. Deborah, why has DNA become such an interesting topic to the public? Well, I think there are four major reasons. First, of course, is interest, because DNA is just far more expansive than your eye color or your hair color. And we want to know more about what we have on the inside. Traditionally, it's been extremely expensive to gather that data. In 2008, it took $10 billion to analyze a full genome, and today's price is $1,000 to $200, depending on the sale. So access, just the availability of it is there, which is absolutely incredible. So cost is an issue. The other part is value. Like, is there any value to gathering this information? And I think that's where we're at right now, trying to figure this out. So historically... We had this concept in genetics that, you know, there was dominant and recessive, and it was almost like a light switch. So if you had the gene and it was dominant, you expressed the protein, you had the disease. But it's just simply not true. So the body has, you know, millions upon millions of base pairs, and we realize now that it's far more complicated. Uh, initially, when the full genome was analyzed, we thought, oh, there's probably a couple of genes for diabetes. We'll figure it out in a few years and we'll, we'll go. And what we have now found out, there are many, many, many genes for diabetes and they're expressed when they come together and they're expressed in a particular environment. And so there's kind of a concept of polygenic expression. Can yeah, you explain so you, what that is? Yeah have a um, device to show you, but if you can imagine a long rope 
and tie five knots in that rope and hold the rope up. And if you can imagine that rope and the knots representing the genes. Okay. So you may have these genetic mutations. You have the knots in the rope. But it's not until all those knots or wrap around something. Imagine wrapping it around your, your fist or your, or a ball. And if those knots are close to each other in just the right way, and they're triggered by an environmental exposure, just the right way. Maybe it's a viral exposure. Maybe uh-huh. it's particular foods. Now suddenly you have the expression of the disease. So each little gene contributes a bit to the process. And this is why we know food's so important, because we have epigenetic expression. We have changes going on. And what's an epigenetic expression? Yeah, that's a great question. We used to think we have these permanent DNA codes, right? And they code for proteins. Mm-hmm. But you don't always make that protein. Sometimes you might make the protein, and sometimes you may not make the protein. So epigenetics is the understanding of the environmental's trigger to express a protein. And it's affected by food, it's affected by uh, love, it's affected by physical environment, everything. So the way we understand genetics is still at its infancy. Um, and why, in particular, Genetic Eve, we really like mitochondrial DNA. So, yes. Tell me more about mitochondrial DNA and why it is your focus. You may remember from high school, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. I do remember. <laughs> and it's true. And it does mm-hmm. really do that. It converts your food stuff through a very particular process called oxidative phosphorylation to generate energy, or ATP. Does all of our energy come from mitochondrial DNA? About 90%. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. And there are different pathways. So there's okay. a pathway for fats, and there's a pathway for sugars, and there's a pathway for proteins. And Mother Nature's smart. So the sugar pathway, as you can imagine, being out in the wild, finding a piece of fruit, that's a very quick and preferential pathway. Mm-hmm. So in today's world, we struggle a little bit with such access to uh, sugar. And proteins also can go into a sugar pathway. So in your mind, if you want to think about just two pathways, sort of fats and then protein sugars, that can help as you make selections in life to optimize mitochondrial health. And is that unique for each individual if their body prefers protein, fat, or sugar? Yeah, it's been fascinating as this project has gone on because we've realized that mitochondria are pretty unique to groups of people. So you can group people roughly. You can kind of group them in the same way you could group male and female looking at hormones. For example, if you wanted to look at how does this medication affect women or how does this medication affect men, or what is the disease prevalence of, you know, cardiovascular disease in women versus men. So it's a way to group people. And we're not at the stage yet of completely understanding personalized medicine. Mm-hmm. So this is a really wonderful way to look at it, plus mitochondria is so old, and mitochondria is only inherited from the maternal side. 
So you do not inherit the mitochondrial DNA from your father's When the sperm penetrates the egg, Mm -hmm. there's an enzyme in the oocyte that blocks the male from contributing. There are some unusual cases. There was one published recently where they had multiple uh, mitochondrial influences, but it's quite rare. It can get complicated. There's a nuclear influence, and I'll show you the proteins in a minute. Okay. But there are five complexes, mm-hmm. and only complex two can be contributed uh, by both mom and a little bit by dad. Wow. So, and some other stuff, too. So, in general, the fascinating part about mitochondrial DNA is it's simple. It's circular. It comes from bacteria ages ago. And... Huh. In the organelle of mitochondria, it has everything it needs as a blueprint to make all of those proteins. Wow. It's like its own little mini factory. We started studying mitochondrial DNA because of ancestry. That's mm-hmm. sort of how it got started. It certainly was not an area I knew a lot about. I, I did know about mitochondrial disease. I thought they were rare. They're, they're not rare. About one to, in 5,000 to one in 10,000 people can have dysfunction in their mitochondria. Okay. My background is in environmental medicine, mm-hmm. and I certainly saw people's responses to toxins varied, and mitochondria was also affected. So preferentially, I wasn't focusing on mitochondria in particular mm-hmm. until some things happened in my own life, and there was this intersection of of ancestry and genetics and microbiome right. that brought this to uh, an interesting place of exploration. And one of the things that you've talked about is the the model of the mitochondria being like an engine. If you think of your mitochondria as the engine organelle in every one of your cells, mm-hmm. it's a great analogy. So a car, for example, can look different. Your car can look different than my car. Mm-hmm. But if we had the same mother, once we opened the hood, our engines would be pretty darn close. And I could tell based on what your engine looked like what your grandmother was like or your great-grandmother was like. And you can trace back in time through a molecular clock your ancestral pathway. So we know based on mutation rates and density of people, that's how we figured out all on mitochondria, the movement of women across the world. And even for a male, they still inherit their mitochondria from their mother. That's right. Your son would have your mitochondria. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't pass it down. It would stop with him. He would I pass, see. He okay. would pass other aspects down. If he had a girl and it was an X chromosome, there would be certainly things he would pass down. But not, not mitochondrial DNA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And also there is a, a metaphor. I like metaphors because DNA can be so complicated in some ways. But you talk about DNA being like rings in a tree. It's a nice way to look at it because you have a record of who you are in your mitochondrial DNA mm-hmm. on your mother's side. And that is a, a wonderful treasure box to go back and see. We became so curious on what made differences in mitochondrial groups. What made your group different than my group? 
why might my group have kept this mutation for tens of thousands or 30,000 years? Because we do know in nature, if the mutation is not helpful or it's not adaptive, over time it dies out. Mm -hmm. So why? Why would I have this mutation now? Is it helping me? Is it hurting me? Mm -hmm. I I didn't know. I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And then I could figure out when it occurred, when that mutation occurred. How do you find that out? You can use calculations. And there's great databases. Mitochondria research is so old. It's one of the earliest uh, genetic research that was done. Oh, I there's didn't a, realize There's that. a lot of data. Uh-huh. On and there's a lot of data on, on haplogroups, which when we talk about. did mitochondrial DNA start getting looked at? What year was that? Oh, mitochondrial has, DNA has been studied for, in, in humans, uh-huh. it's been studied probably from the 70s. Really? 80s. But we didn't have the ability to quickly process information. Mm-hmm. We do now. Like it's very fast for us now with these new technologies to gather information. So, so back then you had to gather samples and you had to take it back to the university or the lab and analyze it. Mm-hmm. And it took quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So seven generations it takes to remove unhelpful mutations. Is that right? Usually we see... After about seven generations, if the mutation is not helpful to you in some way, if it's not mm-hmm. adapted to you in some way, it will die out. Okay. So if you go back to this concept of why might you have this 10,000-year-old mutation, yeah. where where would we find that? It's in the data and it's in the science. And as we uh, delved in, initially I really did it for myself. Mm-hmm. And I was curious about my own particular group. As you put in fuel through an engine, if your engine is inefficient, then it gets hot. I think that makes sense. Right. That's a side effect of mitochondria as well. My particular mutations produce a lot of heat. So that, so that was an interesting finding. And it's called inefficient oxidation, which means when my food mm-hmm. comes in, I waste a lot of it. I don't transfer it all. A lot of it goes into heat. So, so, so does that mean that your, your mitochondrial DNA came from a region that was cold and that you needed that for survival? Yeah, that's okay. exactly right. Okay. So paralleling it with adaptive biology made a lot of sense because during the time period that my uh, genetic Eve Adapted. She was in a particular refugia during the last and glacial maximum. Refugia is kind of what it sounds. It's like a refuge. Okay. So long ago, <laughs> during the ice age, habitable land was small. Okay. And people who had spread out had to come back and move down south to survive. And the best place to survive was often in these areas that had mountains and valleys. Because the water could stay there and it was extremely arid, really oh. difficult. Population density went down. I mean, lots of people died. Mm-hmm. Many eaves that we have found in dig sites are gone. Mm-hmm. So not everybody survived. And these particular areas housed people that were mostly hunter-gatherers for thousands upon thousands of years until the ice sheet began to melt. And then you see large expanses of flora and fauna and people mm-hmm. moving. And we can see that. In, uh, in DNA. So my particular area, it must have been really beneficial. 
Yeah, right. It or had it to have it, continue the mutation. Is that the right way to it say it? It had to have helped her for a very long right. time. And I and love that you talk about her as being genetic yeah. Eve. I thought about who she was because mm-hmm. there's evidence, just like the ring in the tree, or there's evidence of this person in me. There is her actual contribution I carry. Yes. And understanding that helped me a bit. And I could explain it to my children as well. Like, this is perhaps why you feel the way you do here in this mm-hmm. particular climate. And then I became interested if there was any disease associations. I was starting to understand I was an inefficient oxidizer. I produced a lot of heat. I got to see exactly where my mutations were on the electron transport system. I understood vitamins and nutrition and what might help move things down the line. But I I don't live in that refugia anymore. And I wondered if in modern times there could be some associations. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't believe I didn't know about it. It was really surprising (laughs) to me that no one had really shared any of this data with me. It just wasn't on the radar. And that's one of the reasons why you want to share it with other people. Yeah, and even fellow physicians. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of that. I know, I haven't either. Uh Because mitochondria research is old Mm -hmm. and we have ways to study people and put them into big groups. So we put our eaves into big groups because that's what the data supports. How many big groups of eaves do you have? We're starting with about 13. Wow. Yeah. And we use something called the um, last common maternal ancestor or LCMA. It's when there was an enormous change in that group to establish an Eve. Mm-hmm. For example, potentially you could be making mutations now that will be around in 20,000 years. There's no way of knowing. So we do know we have these mutations, and we know when they occurred, and we know where they occurred, and we understand the physiology of what's going on at the molecular level to understand not only is the engine producing heat, And, of course, the most important thing is it produces ATP, which is energy. Yes. That's your most important thing. Yes. But there's also another part of reactive oxygen species that gets Mm -hmm. produced. Everyone thinks about antioxidants, right? Right. And that's to quench reactive oxygen species gone awry. But reactive oxygen species are also helpful. They're signaling mechanisms to the nucleus. Mitochondria are these sacrificial little lambs in a way. So that in the cell, you have the brain, you have the nucleus, right? That's where all the regular DNA is. And it's really protected. And if there's mutations, you have histones to correct it, read it, fix it. They put the mitochondria, like it's like an army, like way out away from the nucleus, lots of copies of it. The mitochondria has no way to fix itself. So it's a wonderful imprint of what's going on in the environment. Um, it's also involved in triggering cell death. If, if sometimes in cancer, you certainly want cell death. Mm-hmm. You don't want this to go on and on. Mm-hmm. So the poor little mitochondria is out there working so hard. It's making energy. It's producing heat for the body. It, it talks to the nucleus and it tells it what's going on, both by reactive oxygen species and other signaling mechanisms. And the little reactive oxygen species go on and kill bacteria. They're involved in the immune system. This is just a few things of what it does. It's also involved in aging. 
When you think of antioxidants, right. you think about aging because reactive oxygen species pours out of the mitochondria, destroys mitochondria itself, as well as collagen that's around it or bacteria that's around it. And it's sort of essential to cancer. It's involved in cancer growth. Mm -hmm. It's involved in immune disease. It's involved in um, any area that needs high density of power. You're going to have a lot of mitochondria, brain, heart, muscles. And they require a, a lot of energy. Right. And you see problems in these areas first. Understanding mm -hmm. perhaps who you are yeah. and appreciating that you have come from a long line of survivors. Our feature product for this episode is Super Ubiquinol CoQ10 with enhanced mitochondrial support. CoQ10 is an essential nutrient your body needs for healthy mitochondrial function, a process that produces your energy at the cellular level. And over time, levels of this enzyme in your body naturally decrease, so the supplement increases energy and has powerful antioxidant properties, protecting mitochondrial DNA from damage. Go to yourtruthreveal.com slash store and use promo code TRUTH for a 20% discount. In response to this interview, I was asked, what is DNA? DNA, short for deoxyribonucleic acid, is the molecule that contains your genetic code. Every cell in your body has some DNA in it. It's your unique molecular blueprint. You inherited 50% of your DNA from your mom and 50% from your dad. The process is easy to have your genetic DNA tested. Contact a testing company and you will receive a DNA test kit in the mail. And the instructions will ask you to spit into a tube or wipe a swab around the inside of your mouth. And then you mail the sample of your DNA to the lab. Know that we all share 99.9% .9 of the same genes. So testing companies show just 0.1% of your genetic makeup in the report. And these reports predict the ancestral origin of different parts of your DNA by comparing them to reference populations. I have my DNA analyzed by 23andMe and my composition is pretty boring. I'm 97% European and 2% Sub-Saharan African. For the interview with Dr. Deborah Dunn, I downloaded my raw data that she then analyzed to discover my mitochondrial DNA. So here's to enjoying the discovery of learning about your roots through DNA. Episode 8 is the continuation of this interview with Dr. Deborah Dunn. Understanding mm -hmm. perhaps who you are yeah. and appreciating that you have come from a long line of survivors. For more learning, download your free worksheet and join in the discussion. I encourage you to go to your truthrevealed.com. Also, please subscribe and add a rating and review at Your Truth Revealed on Apple iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.
I'm Erica Marcoux in Austin, Texas.